Welcome to Min Tracks, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. We're uh, very pleased today uh, to be joined by a special guest, Jeff Green. How are you, Jeff? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. And also, as always, we have Jason Daphnis, super producer. Hello again, and thanks for listening, everybody. So we uh, we uh, connected with Jeff. Um, some of you might know Jeff's background, especially if you've been uh, you know a fan of video games or uh, you know read a lot about video games over the years. Jeff uh, was worked for Ziff Davis at Computer Gaming World. Um, I think games for Windows as well, and then uh, moved on to Electronic Arts, where he did an EA podcast. He worked on the Sims team. Uh, he did Computer Gaming World Radio, and uh, now is actually doing video game consulting as part of a company called. Drum roll, Minmax. Min-max. M I N M A X, not M I N N M A X. Yeah, our lawyer said that would be okay. Okay, that's, <laughs> it's, actually, it's, just kidding. Honestly, it's Ben Hansen's thing. We're just, we're just, we're just his minions. So you know, that's for the bosses. We didn't think of searching on two ends. Yeah. Oh well. Hey, I think it's a good name. That just proves that that proves the concept that it's a good name if two people's out of it. The thing is, there's only like so many video game cliches you can use for your company. Or not cliches, but relevant phrases. Totally, totally. But um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about what uh, your MinMax is doing. Our MinMax, um, yeah, I think our MinMax is maybe not as fun as your MinMax. We, we definitely don't have a music podcast. Um, we're, we are video game consultants, so it's kind of like the same thing we did as game critics, except we're going in there. Before the games are released, while they're still working on them, sometimes as early as alpha, and just giving them feedback on the games as they as they're working on, so that then they get good reviews. Ideally, nice. Uh, How long have you been doing this? Uh, I've been doing this this racket since uh, 2013. So uh, Min Max itself is just four weeks old now, Uh, but I was doing it uh, for six years at at my other place. It's really kind of the closest I've been able to come back to video game journalism since I left the press in 2008. So it's been fun in that way. That's cool. And if you want also some more public-facing stuff that Jeff does, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Greenspeak. And also on Twitch, I know you've done some streaming. Yes. You say you're busy right now, but I'm sure you'll get back to it eventually. I really want to get back to uh, Subnautica. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's well, we the hope yeah, we hope your uh, schedule clears up. So, um, But any in any case, uh, we're actually here, obviously, to talk about music. Um, as you can probably see by the title, this is a special edition uh, podcast, uh, sort of inspired, sadly, by the passing of Florian Schneider, who was one half of the, uh, I guess, super groundbreaking, seminal German synth-pop group Kraftwerk, along with uh, Ralph Huter, I believe you pronounce that. Um, but anyway, uh, we we kind of saw you on uh, Twitter, I think, one day, or Ben Hansen did, and, and you know, just kind of speaking very, very... Um, passionately about craft work yeah. and um, that you were a big fan. So um, we're going to get back to kind of Jeff and craft work after this, but we wanted to kind of kick it off with a, a few music clips and they're actually not going to be craft work. Um, this is something we were just talking about um, off air, but I think sometimes now we grow up in the context of pretty much anyone, you know, since the late eight or mid early eighties, really even late seventies um, kind of grew up accepting like, hey, synthesizers are a part of music. Drum machines are a part of music. Samples are a part of music. Computers are a part of music production. And it's easy to sort of take that for granted and not really understand when you hear somebody like Kraftwerk what it sounded like in the context of the time. So we're actually going to play two little short clips. And these songs were um, the number one and number two most popular songs on the Billboard charts 
1974 in the U.S., the year that uh, Kraftwerk's album Autobahn was released. And I think it'll give you, and then we're going to go into a little bit of Autobahn just so you can kind of get that contrast of just how incredibly groundbreaking, which is sort of a word that gets thrown around, I think, especially on Twitter and, and how genius and how ahead of its time this stuff really was. So Jason, why don't you, we'll, we'll play a couple of smooth jams and then some, some Kraftwerk. All right. We're going to be playing Barbra Streisand's The Way We Were, followed by Terry Jacks's Seasons in the Sun. of my mind Misty watercolor memories of the way we were Scattered pictures of the smiles we left behind Smiles we gave to one another For the way we were Classic Babs right there. <laughs> My God. Okay, <laughs> this is killing me. Yeah. Pretty girls are everywhere Think of me and I'll be there We had joy, we had fun We had seasons in the sun But the hills that we climbed Were just seasons out of time I don't know why you're calling these so different, Matt. I mean, what is Kraftwerk about, if not joy and seasons in the sun? That's true. This could be a Kraftwerk song. They could have covered this. That, they do have actually we'll get into that but they do actually have a very kind of which I know Jeff's going to bring up a point too yeah. but they are, they're some very classic pop songwriters right. in a sense as well alright Terry Jacks there you go and for comparison here's Kraftwerk's Autobahn released the same year as both of those songs Obviously, a very, very different vibe uh, from what you'd classically consider radio hit music. Oh, yeah. And, and I, this is part of a 22-minute cut. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I, not, not, not as a disparaging remark. Like, I really like this song in particular, but yeah, it is, it is a big mash of sound. But, Jeff, you said that there's something very familiar about the intro to the song, or rather the, the main hook to yeah, this song, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, the, 
uh, Kraftwerk were actually big Beach Boys fans, um, which may not really sound like it, it makes sense, but actually, you know, their music. Um, actually, uh, there was a quote I wanted to read about Florian Schneider's, how he felt about the Beach Boys. Uh, it was really interesting. It was uh, doing a little research for this podcast. He had said, uh, and this is speaking as a, as a Beach Boys fan, he said, Germany uh, needed something like the Beach Boys, something with self-understanding and immaculate presence after the ugly wars that our parents had inflicted on the world, something positive and youthful that freed us from the stench of the past. Holy shit. I know, right? Um, so there was something deliberate in their kind of clean-cut look and their uh, their kind of switch from the early experimental stuff they did towards this kind of uh, positive, happy sound, which is really what Autobahn is. Um, and so anyway, the uh, the phrase that you played, the refrain that you played from Autobahn, far and far and far and on the Autobahn, which means drive, drive, drive on, on Autobahn. But I think people used to think they were saying fun, fun, fun. It's actually far and far and far. But anyway, that phrase is a an homage to the opening of uh, the Beach Boys' Barbara Ann. I don't know if you – do you have that opening that – that we could play. Oh, you know I do. I know you do. At this point, they're not they're not emulating the Beach Boys. So they're pretty specific about where they're taking an influence. Yeah, from they, regarding they did the, it on the Beach Boys. Ba fa farn on the autobahn, ba 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 brain. Yeah, and I think there's something kind of interesting about Kraftwerk kind of shaking off those kind of dark war years and the shadow of that. That's kind of similar to the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys were definitely the sort of almost like idealized, sunny version of you know American life in California. You know what I mean? With like surfing, and you drove your hot rod down to the you know like you know, down to the beach or to like the drive-in. And I think that they, you know, I think we're in their own way, we're kind of trying to present this, maybe a future of, of Germany that would be more sort of, you know, an efficient kind of uh, idealized version of that. You know what I mean? Right. Of course, with the Beach Boys, you had one of them. Uh, Dennis was a friend of Charles Manson. And then you had Brian Wilson going crazy on LSD, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something there was, less, there was something less than the American dream. The, oh, well, the yeah, yeah. They tried <laughs> it can it can't all be sunshine and soda phosphates. <laughs> exactly. But uh yeah, but Kraftwerk, I mean, you know, they and if you look at the any of the photos of them, but even starting around actually in their uh in their earliest days they still had long hair and, and kind of had the sixties look, but by the time of Kraftwerk is when they started uh, cutting their hair and putting on suits and, and looking clean cut. And um, you know, if the music wasn't weird enough for you in 1974 um the look of them also if you were just like a regular old suburban uh rock and roll fan you were just like who the fuck are these guys like what is this <laughs> yes. you know like they, 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 don't, they don't look like you know deep purple or something you know what I mean? like that's what that's what rock bands were supposed to look like back then you know right uh, and they looked like bankers or they, you know accountants basically right 
And also, this was like pre-nerd culture, too. And it was sort of like pre-irony culture, too. So, you know, there wasn't even a context for that where it wasn't like a, a hip-to-be-square thing. Like, they just looked like nerds. Do you want to uh, – should we play uh, something else from Autobahn? Um, yeah. Um, when you hit like the 17-minute mark is when they really start kicking in with the uh, faster drum beat and the motoric uh, sound which uh, Krautrock was called back then. The German rock was experimenting. It was just kind of this metronomic uh, drum beat. So it's sort of an early example of, of uh, Kraftwerk kind of doing their robot sound. This is also beyond vocals in this song. It's one of the times that I noticed one of the few times they get like very quickly melodical. Yeah. Um, where a lot of their music focused more on being ambient and like creating a mood and sort of a driving rhythm. This is where you start to hear like the, the synth melodies start to play in. Yeah, that's right. This is actually the only song on this whole uh, record uh, that has lyrics at all. The rest is all instrumental. Of course, later as they kind of were getting more synth poppy. Uh, they have more traditional uh, rock or pop sounding songs and, and time lengths. This was really sort of the, this was the transitional album for Kraftwerk. It was actually their fourth album, though if you would never know that even if you went to Kraftwerk's own website, because they kind of start counting at Autobahn. And they, uh, Florian, uh, didn't really disown the first three. They just kind of, don't acknowledge them, but they're actually their first three albums are, are just called Kraftwerk, Kraftwerk Two, and then Ralph und Florian. And the really the only way you can hear those is basically on YouTube or if you go to like a collector's record site. And they're quite amazing. And in fact, there's of course because there always is there are those fans like the old Kraftwerk fans who think that you know Kraftwerk sold out starting with Autobahn. <laughs> Those first three that you can't yeah. find are actually the only cool ones, yeah. which is, they, you know, which are, is mor- moronic. But they are cool records, though. And I think Jeff, they I just are. wanted to touch on yeah. something that you kind of mentioned in passing, which was Kraftwerk is a product of, I think, one of the really great kind of musical scenes of the late 20th century, which is, as you mentioned, Kraut Krautrock, which was sort of a group of very different, but in some ways like-minded German bands from the like the late 60s to the mid 70s that kind of all to varying degrees uh, could be, you know, electronic, could be very, you know, kind of psychedelic and experimental with various like live instruments. And, um, you know, uh, there was a, a bunch of great bands, Noi, Can, Cluster, um, Faust, Harmonia, um, Tangerine Dream, who went on in the 80s to be, pro- they're probably the closest to Kraftwerk. They did tons of um, movie soundtracks that were synthesizer based 
later in the 1980s and got quite popular. Um, but anyway, that if uh, Popovo was a great band, but uh, anyway, I'm a big fan of all that stuff, and I would encourage people to you know check out any and all of those bands. Really, um, were great, and and the early early Kraftwerk stuff that you were just talking about is definitely, I think, closer to stuff like Can or Noi yeah. and, and Amon Duel stuff like that. So um, yeah. anyway, do you think we can? Are you okay with me playing just uh, I don't know 10, 15 seconds of that first album? Just because sure. like discovering that it wasn't their first, that Autobahn wasn't their first actual album was a revelation to me and how I understood this band. And I think it might be helpful for folks who just have a cursory knowledge of the band like I do. Mm-hmm. Sure, good idea. So that's more than 15 seconds, but I think you get the point. I like, love that stuff. I, I, I do too. Man, and they it was sold out like after not- this. They t- <laughs> yeah, screw that. It took them such a short time. Uh, no. no, but like that, that's for, that's a track called Rooksook from Kraftwerk 1 in 1970. So a full 40 years before Autobahn came out. And you can like hear that sort of iteration of, of rhythm and melody and, and percussion on top of it. Uh, I didn't know before listening to this that, uh, Huter and Schneider were, um, I forget which one was which, but they were a flautist and a violinist, right? Like they were multi-instrumentalists, excuse me, multi-instrumentalists, but they were both pretty skilled at, at those two instruments. Yeah, right. right. It was uh, Schneider on the on the flute. I think you okay. hear a little flute even on Autobahn. You a do. A little bit. Yeah, a yes. very small, small oh, yeah? bit. And also that song that you just played, Jason, I think for people, if, if they like that stuff, that, that song is very close to what I would, you know, consider uh, the, the band Can, um, mm-hmm. who was probably kind of the preeminent of all the kraut rock band so if you dig that i think can um like tago mago um or, or things like that would be a good place to check for for more of that style or also the can band is Noi. amazing yeah. you, you could do a whole podcast on them definitely so um but yeah let's let's get back to um more of autobahn um just given that this was sort of their rebirth as kind of a, a synthesizer based band that kind of you know I don't know, was focused on sort of these ideas of the future. They were always, I think it's interesting too, like Autobahn is their first song. And like, that's always been one of their, I think, main themes is this idea of like transportation, you know, like Trans Euro Express, um, Tour de France later on in their career. So I think that's kind of interesting that they had a lot of these things right from the beginning. Right. And um, yeah, and that was the whole first side. That was, I think, the only time they ever did that. Um, have a, a full side uh, song, and it was also one of the only songs that they didn't do an English version of uh, in subsequent years. Um, pretty much every other song and record they translated, and they didn't do that with Autobahn for whatever reason. Um, just- Could it be because it's just so? Do you mean the the album Autobahn? Could it just be because there are so few lyrics on the album? Yeah, I mean the entire. Uh, the lyrics of Autobahn are, are like six lines in total. And also, <laughs> right. I don't, I, I think this is one case where it really would get lost in the translation. I think, you know, we drive, drive, drive on the Autobahn. I just don't, it doesn't seem like it would sound great. 
to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, potentially. Uh it is it's been really important for me to listen to these albums knowing like the very specific German mindset behind it. Matt touched on it a little bit earlier with like the very uh buttoned down straight laced look that they adopted uh later on, but like how they m- moved from that more psychedelic um like organic sound to a very machine-like sound um and their aesthetic changed with it right and and it's also like a clean sound and open and uh warm in a way like that was another aspect of autobahn you know the kind of go with the beach boys image if you look at the cover for it it's very kind of like this idyllic uh almost pastoral scene and um in fact the um I can I can read you the lyrics because there's just not that many other than the chorus. The only the verses are just uh, in front of us is a wide valley. The sun shines with glittering rays. The road is a gray band, white stripes, green edge. Now we are switching the radio on from the speaker. It sounds and that's it. Um, I think yeah. I, I think that's a modest mouse song. I think you had the wrong lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and they meant to emulate, you know, the the idea of taking a a, you know, a nice car ride on an autobahn. Just uh, you know, it, 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 throughout the twenty two minutes, you hear the sounds of the radio, and, uh, passing traffic, and cars. So it's meant to emulate like a nice Saturday drive. Yeah, no, it's it's a. I mean, it's just a amazing. It's an amazing piece of work that that song. And then um, you know, it just I think it kicks off their career. Uh, yeah, you know. and you know, really to go back to what I, I'm so glad that you opened the podcast the, the way you did uh, with those opening songs because that context is is really crucial. And like you said, it's super hard for people to understand now because it, the electronic sounds are just everywhere. But you know, I actually am old enough that I was around. I was uh, 13 at the time that this came out, and the thing was like, not only was there not electronic music, there was no way to like hear electronic music you know there was no internet there was no spotify um if the radio didn't play it which they didn't there was really no way to hear it you know most record stores power records wasn't going to carry it um you know you had to live in a in a pretty cool town with an indie record store that would even know what these things were um and i actually remember when i first heard this uh craftwork autobahn was uh you know, I would just lay in my room at night and uh, be flipping around on the radio because that's really all there was to do. Uh, and on the FM dial at the lower end, there would be called stations. I lived in LA. There was a station called KMET that would occasionally play really weird stuff. And um, they were actually playing Autobahn. And I just remember it was somewhere in the middle of the song. And I just was like utterly transfixed because I literally never heard anything like it. Um, it didn't sound like rock music. It didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard. Um, and I was fascinated by it. But after hearing it that one time, like that was it. You know, until um, they actually, in 1975, Kraftwerk released a single version of, of Autobahn, which they cut down from 22 minutes to three and a half minutes. And yeah, and that is what ended up on the charts. So that's how Kraftwerk actually started getting known in the U.S. and started getting radio play. They were smart enough to see the kind of commercial potential of the of the main 
melody. Um, and it hit number 25 in the U.S. at three and a half minutes. But that was the first time you could actually hear this kind of music on the radio, like, at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of anything else. There was, I mean, I guess, like, Walter now, or later, Wendy Carlos, um, and, like, switched on Bach and some of that stuff. But that was really just, that was sort of using a synthesizer in the same way that you would just use a traditional instrument. You know what I mean? It wasn't necessarily, and I guess there was some stuff like Silver Apples, maybe, or, like, Morton Sabat, tubular Su- bells, remember? Yeah, uh, and like suicide, some of that stuff. But, but yeah, they were they were definitely different. I mean, I think that they that you're right that they sort of set this template for what would become synth pop. Really, you know, that I think that no one else really was coming close to at that time. Um, well, let's let's listen to another song, Jeff. Did you want to pick another yeah, one here it, from it, it, Autobahn? Yeah, side two is is really totally different. Um, they uh the songs are are called uh comet melody uh midnight and morning stroll and the sounds of those songs are all kind of you know in the name uh comet melody uh was uh, written for uh Cahotec, the comet that was uh that had appeared in the sky around that time which is also the same name as a uh, REM song um and that this was actually their first single uh before Autobahn. Uh, so if you play Comenton Melody, that's Comet Melody Part 2, starting about the 30-second mark, that's when the main riff of that song is. And this was the first single in Europe. It was never released in the, in the U.S. Like this is where I start hearing the like '80s new wave yeah. bands. Totally, I actually like yeah stuff like orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Yeah, you, know, you can almost see like Molly Ringwald doing something like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> and also that that little that kind of that that synth chimes actually yeah. the way it kind of goes over the chord change actually reminds me of the song "Plain Song" by The right. Cure off Disintegration a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's kind of remarkable that that's 74 because that, that, I'm glad you brought that specific part up because I was listening a lot this week to both these albums and man, that is like people say ahead of its time a lot. And I don't think it's always necessarily true. I think most stuff is very of its time, but that is, man, that could be 1981, 82, 83, 84. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just like, you know, everybody says it. We have said it on this podcast. So it's just impossible to overstate, you know, how remarkable what they were doing was at the time. I mean, you know, this was like the era of like the Eagles, Chicago, you know, all all those that was what was on the radio. Uh Jeff, you talked about listening to this album in your teen years. What like do you think you were able to fully appreciate what it was doing to music at large, or was it just like, Absolutely wow, this not. is a real yeah? Not at all. And not and not only that, I mean I didn't I mean honestly I didn't even necessarily like it. Um, you know, I thought it was weird and amazing, but it wasn't you know, I was still listening to, you know, all the, all that other bullshit. Um, and, uh, 
there was no appreciation of it. In fact, what I do remember is that this stuff was really kind of considered like novelty music. Like when that uh, uh, edit of Autobahn appeared on the radio, it wasn't like, you know, Stairway to Heaven. Or it wasn't like everyone was going like, oh, my God, this song is amazing. It was more like, ha ha, these Germans kind of sound like the Beach Boys. You know, it was, it was like, uh, I don't know, Gangnam Style or, or Disco Duck or something. It was like <laughs> yeah, a novelty yeah, like a, song. A, a, yeah, okay. I, I could totally see that, how that would be perceived at the time. Because you don't really know that it's, that it's going to last. And, and certainly by the lens of like 74, 75, I mean, people were certainly yeah. using synthesizers. Like, you know, there's a lot more synthesizers than people think on like Stevie That's Wonder right. records of that time. But, you know, again, he's he's kind of in the same way that Wendy Carlos was, you know, kind of just using synths in the same sense that he would have used, you know, string sections or right. organs and or like things like yes that. Yes was around and all yeah, those well, kind of bands. Rick Emerson, Wakeman. Like, he had like, Rick Wakeman. He had yeah. like. 10 times more synthesizers than like Kraftwerk probably owned just on stage. Yeah. yeah actually, I'm glad you brought him up because uh, I was reading a, a Lester Bangs interview with, uh, with Florian Schneider and he had a great thing he said about Rick Wakeman. This is Florian Schneider who said it. He said, he is something else, uh, a distraction. It's not electronic music. It's circus tricks on the synthesizer. I cannot, I cannot listen to it. <laughs> Oh, uh, I, I like yes, all right, but yeah, yeah. I see what he's saying. <laughs> um, I um, if you don't mind, just because we're kind of talking about stuff that was influential, I, I wouldn't mind playing Jason sort of maybe like the last minute or so of oh boy, Morgan Spatzergang. And oh, I don't, I, you, yeah. what does that mean? That you told me what was uh, that morning was morning stroll. So yeah, this I is, feel like I'm playing. I feel like I'm playing Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. Yeah, it's so airy and open. <laughs> yeah, and, well, I mean, like beautiful and, and calming. And, yeah. and the reason I wanted to bring this up because it's sort of atypical for the album, but also, and, and they're using you know even some degree of more live instruments here, woodwinds and stuff. But I, the reason I bring it up is because that section, especially or that song and that section in particular, I think was very also influential. Like I think it was maybe like late 70s, 77, 78 that Brian Eno did music for airports, which was kind of considered the first ambient mm -hmm. record and, you know, kind of things in the late seventies, like what would become new age music was sort of coming up at that point as well. And like, that sounds a ton like music for airports, which in itself is considered a very influential album. So I think even just that few minutes of that one song, I think kind of spawned a lot of people and, and, you know, I know was a big fan of Kraftwerk and all those dry right. bands. Um, so right. I just thought that was kind of interesting because it's really not what they're known for. And even on the record, it kind of sticks out. But I think that that, that song in particular for different people, maybe that didn't go the synth pop route, I think was yeah. equally as influential. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think this too, this was like the, the flutes, hearing the flutes just, I, I think this is like the last time they ever even used non-electronic instruments. I can't think of any like on Trans Europe Express or no, um, no. which was the very next. No, actually, radioactivity. 
Um, if you don't mind playing one more thing. Oh yeah, let's we'll definitely play more. Uh, we can play as much. The the uh, the the other song on the record, Midnight, um, is just like super creepy. Um, let's see, I, I think I marked like at like two sixteen is it's basically just the same riff over and over and over. Um, I think I marked two sixteen because it it's a good starting point uh, of the main riff. Did, did Mannheim Steamroller ever do a Halloween album? <laughs> yes, right? That's all I can think of. Yeah, it's it, you can hear like the direct John Carpenter. Uh, yeah, totally. Thing oh, in here. man. Yeah. That's the crazy thing about this band uh, for me. And I'm a complete noob. I, like I've already said a few times, completely new to craft, but is that it's very hard for me to even imagine like, where do you even start tracking the influence of a group like this? Because, I mean, I've already thrown out references to video games that are completely apt for this music. Uh, you just said the John Carpenter influence. Like, it's it, it's every it's like rather than just a style of music, it's like a, a method of production. It's a means of creating something that was so heavily impacted by one group. It's it's impossible. How do you, how do you even track that? Like across medium, uh, across types of like entertainment and and creative work. Right. And then when you think about the fact that, you know, Bowie uh, got completely blown away by them, you know, he had made Young Americans and then he saw Kraftwerk and he had his mind blown. And his next record was Station to Station, which was the beginning of his experimental phase, which then turned into the Berlin records. And then when you think about Bowie's influence from those records on everybody else that came after, you know, Kraftwerk's... Uh, Kraftwerk's influence is just exponential. Yeah, actually, that's funny. I, I remember, um, you know, and Bowie's, obviously, I, I love David Bowie. I especially love those Berlin records. Mm-hmm. Station Station's probably my favorite Bowie mm-hmm. record. But it was funny. I read an interview with the, one of the guys from Harmonia, and he sounded a, a little salty at Eno because he was like, Eno had been there the year before they started working on Low, and he was really into Harmonia. And he's like, I'm going to come back. I want to produce you guys and, and do all this stuff. And then he never showed up again. And then the next thing they heard, like, low, and they were like, oh, that's cool. Cool. I wonder where, I wonder where you got some of those ideas, you know? So it was kind of – I think that some of those German guys felt like Bowie and Eno kind of, you know, definitely and obviously pinched, you know, some of their ideas. Um, and a lot of people were. But, you know, I thought that was kind of a funny anecdote that um, you could tell he's had some kind of feelings, which is funny. Um, yeah. But, uh, and also, Jason, you know, your point about video games, I mean, I think that – God, I mean, you know, chip tunes and outrun stuff and, you know, all that, you know, synth wave stuff that's, that's popular on like YouTube now, video game music. And I know Kraftwerk, I think was, was very popular in Japan, especially influential on a band called Yellow Magic Orchestra. Um, and, uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto. Um, and, and, you know, they were definitely inspired by Kraftwerk. And I think we're kind of a real kind of movement within Japan. I'm sure that influenced a lot of the guys that made, you know, 80s, especially mid-80s, 8-bit and 16-bit music. Yeah, Yellow Magic Orchestra is kind of like the Japanese craft work. Um, a little more disco-y, I think. Uh, they're great. 
All right. So now we're going to, I think we're going to switch. I mean, we obviously covered Autobahn. And I think it's, it's, it's an amazing record. The title track, I think is one of the great songs of the you know 20th century. Um, and we're going to go now forward into the future, which I picked Autobahn. It actually, it turned out very well. I picked Autobahn, which is kind of like not the first Kraftwerk record, but the first Kraftwerk, Kraftwerk record. And um, Jeff picked a different record from years later that I think is sort of represents maybe their apex and their evolution as sort of a synth pop band and, and how they, you know, you can kind of see the end result of how they sort of modernized and, and, and modernized and their technology and their sound. So uh, he picked album computer world. So Jeff, tell us why you picked this album and, and kind of what it meant to you. Yeah, I picked that one uh, basically for the reasons it stated. It was really the apex. It was the last of their um, kind of classic run of albums, which is Autobahn uh, radioactivity. Uh, uh, Trans Europe Express, right? Man, man machine, man machine, and then Computer World. So that was their big run, and and you know, frankly, I I like in my mind that's comparable to the Beatles' run of of uh, revol of Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, White Album, just in terms of importance. Yeah, let let's let's kick off Computer World with the title track. <laughs> kind of hear it's it's definitely you can hear you know what you heard in autobahn but it's definitely i think changed also in some important ways why don't you talk a little bit about that jeff yeah well obviously they've sort of embraced more of a formal like pop song structure um you know what's interesting is so this came out in 81 and by now you know there's a lot of bands and artists that were uh doing craftworks thing uh gary newman is an obvious one uh, orchestral maneuvers you had mentioned, you know, even Depeche Mode were all starting to tap into this kind of electronic pop. And, um, you know, Kraftwerk was like an old band by this point. And, um, I think there may have even been a couple year gap before Man Machine. So it wasn't even really clear that like how, you know, how cool or relevant they were anymore. And then they came out with this one, you know, which was, basically to send the big 
another masterpiece. But also it's interesting, you know, again, in retrospect to remember and, you know, looking at the, the title and the cover and the themes of all the songs is this is still only 1981. I mean, it's three years away from the Macintosh still. Um, so this is before everyone had uh, home computers. 81, that hadn't happened yet. Um, so they're talking, you know, their songs, one of them is Computer Love. Uh, you know, they're the themes and uh, just what's going on throughout the, the whole record. Home Computer is another song. They were, again, just kind of ahead of their time, just thinking about how these machines basically uh, come in and then take over our lives. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, you know, but you're still right. I mean, I think we're a couple years from even like Blue Monday by New Order isn't out for a couple years yet. So, um, but but you're right in that they were really, I think it's interesting for being such a German, um, you know, almost art, art, archetypally German group. They were really, at this point, it found themselves sort of circulated all over the world. Obviously, England, as you mentioned, a ton of people from the post-punk scene became very into what they were doing. But I think in American uh, discos, um, the more progressive discos, and even you know stuff like Africa Bambata, the early hip hop stuff, and and breakdance music, and and stuff like Planet Rock, and Searching for the Perfect Beat, um, you know these kids from the Bronx that you know Germany might as well have been Mars to them, and but they they heard something that they liked in Kraftwerk, and obviously kind of took that in a whole direction. That I'm, you know, I'm sure 1974 Kraftwerk would have never even imagined. So well, who would have thought that so much uh, rap, you know, would would be using, you know, this completely unhip German band uh, as the backing for some amazing tracks? I mean, you mentioned Planet Rock. That's like the most famous one and, and the one that really kind of put them on the map with everybody, which I think came from Numbers, the song Numbers. Yeah, Numbers. Um and also, I think didn't they they sampled Trans Euro Express too? Oh, but uh-huh. I mean, if you look up, there's a, there's a great site called Who Sampled, and you can look up. And I think I looked up numbers and some of these songs off this album. And they've been sampled like 85, 90 <laughs> times, you know. And I, I re- actually before I even heard Kraftwerk, I was a big rap fan growing up, and I just remember stuff like the like Each Knee Sunshi or whatever yeah. the counting off one two three four in Japanese. That sample had been on so many rap records before I heard Kraftwerk. So. um but yeah, now they're kind of living in the world that they almost like created. Right. And, and, you know, um, and then the other thing about this record is just that, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Go um, ahead. Is, uh, uh, that despite the kind of ponderous theme, this is also probably like their most accessible record and maybe like their funniest record. Pocket calculator was again kind of almost a novelty hit. I mean, it was on the radio. Um, and it's maybe the most tuneful. I think it's sort of the easiest one to listen to. Yeah, let's play a little bit of that, Jason. I had a couple spots I wanted to play. I'm the operator of my pocket calculator. I'm the operator of my pocket calculator. Thank you. 
so happy that he's guiding us through what he's doing in the <laughs> yeah. song. I wish something made me as happy as this pocket calculator made him. If only they knew that iPhones were coming. You know? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they loved them. Um, uh, I also want to play it like 236 because I, I think they do a cool thing where they kind of like, as you heard a little bit there uh, and you hear more of it at 236. Um, I kind of like how they musicalize for, if that's a word, um, computer sounds like almost like kind of dial up modem stuff. And and these kind of you know the the bleeps and bloops of like early video games and things like that, um, and they kind of incorporated into their music. I think in, in a really in a funny way. I mean, they're a very funny band actually, despite their their kind of uh, their image. I think that they have a very sort of wry sense of humor. Almost this kind of like Morse code yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I love going this part. This is, I think you're right. It's definitely one of their most, you know, pure pop songs. And I think that it's just cool the way they, they kind of make these little, I don't know, I don't want to call them musical jokes, but they're, I think they're kind of funny little phrases, but they actually fit them in very musically to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I think it's the song after this home computer. I can't remember the order of the songs on this record. Um, but the song home computer is uh is different. So while they have this kind of almost novelty, funny song, I, I think that, uh, uh, not home computer, I'm sorry, computer love. That's a song. Computer love to me is like the most, maybe their most moving song. Um, yeah. You know, it's one where they're actually expressing human emotion, which is completely rare for them. And the melody is just, uh, beautiful. This melodic figure that they have throughout the song is like, as Jeff said, is just amazing. To me, this song really shows how smart they were in using um, in using different like waves of sound when like pairing it with their voices versus like we just listened to Pocket Calculator, where there are a lot of very harsh, very impactful noises. 
uh, and tones. But in the case of uh, computer love, it's, it's almost constantly paired with the human voice and to like smash those two things together is not a very clean sound. So the synth sort of takes a much softer, glimmerier tone and the bass has like a very envelope filter type sound to it. That's, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that they knew when was and wasn't appropriate to make that harsh uh, German sound the way that they, I think it was Schneider. One of them described it as like our language, the German language is very harsh and the music can reflect that and should. Uh, and to me, when I, when I read that just in my quick research about these albums, I, I was, I was worried that it would like all be very harsh, very bassy, very synthy, you know, like, like the Blade Runner soundtrack, but cranked up to 11, but it's just not, it's, it's like they were very smart and tactful and strategic about where to deploy that rough, that not rough, but harsh, uh, very like boxy square and sine waves to a very specific effect and when to like reel it back and make room for a voice. That's a great point. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, speaking of, you know, being ahead of their time, like the kind of, main little melod that do 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 that figure i'm a terrible singer but <laughs> uh, i hope you know what i'm saying um but that i mean honestly that sounds like it could be from like there was a lot of kind of indie kind of pop synth bands from about five six years ago or somebody like future islands like I, I feel like that could totally that music without the maybe without the vocals i feel like that could be from like five or six years ago or something you know it's, it's just yeah. incredible how yeah i, I mean it, it's yeah, what what you were saying, Jason, is really interesting. Just that, um, you know, if you just think, if you just take the phrase like German electronic music, you just don't think of things like kind of this warm um, and clean and really sort of friendly. You know, for all their sort of robotness and and and, and them talking about being, you know, the man machine. There's really actually a lot of of, of humor and, and emotion in their work. It, it's not. This is not harsh music. Right. And I mentioned earlier that one of the things that really was revelatory for me in understanding this group, because prior to this, I knew the parodies, I knew the, you know, the image, and that's kind of the perception I had of them. But knowing that A, they come from, well, primarily that they come from a, a like a psychedelic organic background with the flute and the violin and sort of that more jammy sound, that explained to me that like, they're not like they accepted the bit and they wore it very, very well. And they really committed to it and they knew what they were about. Uh, but they didn't like, I guess, let that get in the way of being sincere musicians and having like an actual reason and creative drive for making that music, I guess. I mean, I'm cynical. So when I see a band that has a bit and that they sound like a certain thing, I pigeonhole them immediately. And I did that with craft work too. And that was a mistake because then I went back and listened to their older stuff and it recontextualizes all this stuff, including things like computer love in a completely new light where they weren't just guys fucking around with bleep bloop instruments and made some good music. They like had the same heart, the same soul that they put into their like starting three albums into every album following. Uh, I don't know. It was, I guess it was just a really good feeling to find that out. I don't know if anybody else had that kind of experience. Yeah, I, I think you're right that, you know, the artistic intent, it was serious the entire time. Um, and that, and it was very uh, self-conscious what they were doing. You know, I think that was, was part of the point, their their appearance and the suit and ties. I don't think it was to be funny. I mean, maybe it was to be a little ironic or provocative, but um, it it was a bit like you're saying. And yet, the commitment to the music um, is so strong. You know, in every aspect, um, the songwriting, the topics they took on, you know, 
and uh, and just the incredible use of the technology at the time. And and that's a, you know that your your point about their image too is great because this is another example here in eighty one now where their image was fairly radical in the in the in the, that it wasn't a very hippie kind of based you know image. Now by eighty one it's really not that weird. You know, yeah. what I mean? because a lot of the bands they inspired, like say a Gary Newman, or you know, even I mean, they might have been a little more flamboyant in terms of how they wore suits and what kind of suits they wore. But you know, the, a lot of the new wave was definitely more you know skinny ties and blazers and things like that. So even even fashion wise, in their own kind of way, they also prefigured a lot of the stuff that now, by the time of Computer World, doesn't look or you know, a band like New Order was always very kind of preppy in how they dressed. You know. Right, exactly. Like Talking Heads was around at the time, and they were kind of doing the clean cut nerd thing. Let's uh, let's play. You mentioned Home Computer, and this was uh, I actually wrote this down. This has been sampled eighty one times by people as disparate as um, Compton's Most Wanted, Jack Mode, the song off their classic West Coast Music to Drive By album, and then also you know, everything from that to Aphex Twin to LCD Sound System have all sampled this uh, and kind of this section I'm talking about at 137. little ascending pattern like pops up on so much kind of hip-hop electro techno whatever it was kind of ingenious that that the rappers and hip-hop artists found the funk and yeah and it is. you would not you would not think of describing them as funky and yet all these other artists proved otherwise yeah absolutely um actually let's um let's play another one i wanted to check in on and, and you just mentioned kind of the funkiness because this this i feel like they might have I don't know if they're being inspired by people that were inspired by them, but in this particular section of it's, it's more fun to compute, which is an amazing song title, number one. Um, but this section, I kind of feel like they're they're doing some kind of things like with dropping the beat and then kind of building it that maybe you know is sort of looking forward to some techno and maybe was kind of influenced by maybe some of that like early like disco and house stuff that was going on around them at the time. So it's at about one oh three, but I think it's kind of a cool. The way they layer this and, and kind of build it up is cool.
yeah, here you start to kind of feel almost like kind of a techno from like the later 80s or early 90s kind of vibe. Yeah, I um no Jeff, you mentioned that and I think you probably kept better track of their careers that went on. Um but this is sort of you mentioned sort of being the end of the classic era. And I right here I just want to break in and say that we've kind of done Autobahn and and, and um computer love. I, I definitely recommend people check out especially Transero Express and Man Machine, which I'm sure a lot of Kraftwerk fans would probably argue that one of those two might be their best album as well. So those are yeah, I mean Man Machine is definitely uh, the kind of the one I fell in love with, but those are amazing records. Radioactivity is very good as well. Um, but I guess because I now after this, they don't, I think they take a break, yes, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, in fact, it seemed that for a while, like they were kind of going to be done by that. Um, let's see, they put out um, Electric Cafe in 86, so that was five years later, and that wasn't even really like a full album. Um, and uh, and then, so, right, so they did, it's almost like an EP, really, of, uh, yeah, five years later in 86, and then they put out an album in 91 called The Mix, so that was 10 years after Computer World, and The Mix really holds up today, it's basically what it sounds like, it's just remixes of their own stuff uh, with technology from the 90s, um, and so it's a little funkier, you know, this is actually one thing that I think is still cool about them to this day is that they're constantly kind of updating their sound with, you know, they're, they're obviously complete techno geeks and they're constantly updating their sounds with, with all of the latest. And so they will re-record their stuff, uh, kind of freely. And pretty much all of it is on, uh, is on Spotify to check out. And so they give all their stuff like new textures and new sounds. They, they even will mess around with the structure of the songs. Um, but anyway, to your point, they don't put out any new original music until 2003. So they go from 1981 Computer World to the Tour de France soundtrack in 2003. And um, I guess that's actually going to be the last original music they put out unless they record something without uh, Florian Schneider. Yeah, and that I think was sort of, they were... I think both of them were very ardent cyclers. And so that was sort of, I think probably something they were approached with or, or just thought of because they were so in love with the sport. Do you have any idea? And I, 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 I guess didn't, like I said, follow them as closely. Was there any reason given for why they kind of seemed to back off from music? Yeah. You know, I don't really, I don't really know. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I think it was just kind of a, a classic thing that happens with, just about any band, you know, they, they shone bright for, for that whole run of, of like one classic after another. Um, and then I, I just don't know what happened. Yeah. I think you're right though, that they, I think they were contacted to do the song for Tour de France. Because, like you said, they're, they're hardcore bicyclists. Um, and then they uh, just made a whole album around that, um, which actually is also pretty excellent. Um, it yeah. was a really cool return to form, sort of a surprising return for them to put out new music and then have it be so awesome. 
Yeah, and I actually just I've you know been working at home like everybody else. I've been just kind of listening to Spotify, my headphones, and um, I actually was checking out the 3D the catalog, which is a live album they did in a tour that now I absolutely really, really, really kick myself for not seeing. They didn't like what by all accounts, people I know that went was this amazing. 3D tour where they everyone had 3D glasses in the audience and they had these amazing like uh, visual displays in 3D with the four of them on stage. Um, well, them and I don't think I don't even think Florian was touring in the last tour. Actually. He was not. I think it was yeah. other people. Um, but I, it's a really cool album. They actually again they you know they're obviously doing this on laptop now. Yeah. And but they they do some really cool um additions and kind of changes and and medleys and things of their old material and and so it, it, it's kind of fresh and all sounds much more sort of clean and like kind of digital yes um but i actually thought it was it was a cool listen i, I thought it was a, a unique spin um and i like the fact that they even though that you know i guess it's sort of a nostalgia tour at a certain point but they, they weren't content just to kind of run out there with like the old backing tracks on like wave files right. you know what i mean they, they clearly put some thought into it right i i did not get to go to that tour either i had a ticket but had to go on, on business, which now it just feels like such a stupid decision. I should have just made some. I should have said I was sick or something. Uh, uh, but I did go to the tour before this one. Uh, it wasn't a 3D thing, but um, but it was uh, uh, relatively similar in terms of the set list that they did, and it was just it was just unbelievably great. Like I had no idea, and even as a huge fan, I did not know what seeing Kraftwerk live was going to be like. You know, when you look at photos of it and you see four guys up on stage with four laptops and that's it, you know, it's hard not to feel a little like, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, are they just like up there, like playing Minesweeper and, <laughs> and you know, and there's just music being yeah. piped in? Like, how do you even know it's live? And yet when, when, when you're there and you see it, and I mean, first of all, you could see their hands moving. I suppose they're, they could still be playing Minesweeper, but you can see, you know, you can hear sort of like a little element of improvisation and and a live feel to it. Um, and it was such a great, great show. I'm so glad I got to see them. And I think that that I was so happy there because there were so many young people and because just the, the music in that show sounded like current music. You know, they were playing songs from going all the way back to 1974, Autobahn, and the whole place was just like going crazy. Um, like it was a modern, you know, electronica or rave concert. It was, it was great. That's wild. Uh, what was the crowd? What is the crowd like at a Kraftwerk concert? I, like you said, you said the age also skews young, but is it? Are they going wild? Are they doing MDMA and flopping around on the ground? Well, what is where happening? I saw them, uh, which was at the Fox Theater in Oakland. Is that where I saw them? Um, it was kind of divided in two. You had your your geezers like me, who were like uh, sitting or leaning against a rail. Um, but then there, you know, the pit up front. It was just a full on dance scene. Pe- just people awesome. going nuts. Wow! And by the way, they had an incredible uh, visual show to go with there, to go with the music. Um, so you know, which I guess is necessary when the rest of it is just four guys sitting in front of laptops. Yeah, very sadly they were they were actually coming to Minneapolis this summer and I was intending to go and now it got canceled over obviously COVID and so I don't know who, what the future of that is. Hopefully it gets rescheduled cuz I know I know that you know obviously Florian wasn't touring with them anyway and I could almost see with Kraftwerk though it wouldn't shock me if 
Ralph and Florian kind of had the idea that maybe Kraftwerk was sort of an organization mm-hmm. that would sort of continue. You know what I mean? On, I mean that that just they're sort of the way they kind of structured that band to be sort of not anonymous, but in some ways kind of anonymous. You know, I, I wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if they had some plans like that. Well, they kind of. I mean, that was like their whole thing, right? That they're the the men machine. They weren't they were people? They were a machine. Man machine. I I think I do agree is one of their maybe the best record. I it's hard every time I listen to one. I I say okay, no, this is my favorite. But when you when you look at the cover of the Man Machine, that's like I think the, the scariest one and the one like kind of most off putting. Uh, if you've never heard of them. Um, you know, you've got these four German guys in uh, red suits, and it looks like like red lipstick. And the uh, the graphics of it are all kind of like Russia propaganda era style Kraftwerk man machine. It just looks, it you know, it just like if my I'm Jewish, Jewish, and if my parents saw that record in my house, I think they'd be freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, and it's the the color scheme is very red and black to you know. To your yeah. <laughs> but uh um but yeah no it, it that it's a very that's probably the most striking image i think the iconic image of them and it's it is a great album um this is kind of i, I hope i can express this right because i was gonna i wanted to bring it up at this point but listening to i think especially autobahn um but also computer love that song and certain i have this weird emotion about Kraftwerk, and i don't know if the, the germans are good for having words that express these kind of feelings but it's almost like uh Sort of a nostalgia for a future that never happened. If that oh, yeah. makes sense, that's great. Like this kind of this this kind of idea that that technology and computers and and modern transportation we're going to sort of create this like orderly, you know, efficient kind of society where we would sort of be empowered to be kind of like happy and and everything would be sort of you know we'd be sort of past maybe the the two the tumult of like the 60s which they were coming out of in, in the early 70s and vietnam and all that sort of things um but obviously as we know you know technology just you know now it's just horrible like george soros memes on like facebook or something you know what i mean and, like it's like it's, it's very it's just like it's so in, like the internet even is sort of like you know all these pop-ups and it's just sort of inelegant and like horribly designed in a lot of ways and and obviously you know the ideas that they had um, and especially on computer love are expressing, I don't know. It just never really happened. I, I just thought we'd be in, you know, everyone talks about hoverboard or whatever, or like that we'd be in these kind of like Jetsons kind of space cities or, you know, fifth element kind of stuff. And it just never, never happened that way. Yeah. We got screwed. Didn't we? We never got the moving sidewalks, <laughs> all the shit they promised us. Jetpacks. Matt, it makes me wonder in your world travels. And I guess Jeff as well. In your world travels, have you felt like we're like the rest of the world? It's not America. Is any closer to a craftwork future than I don't we are? Know. Maybe like the airport in South Korea or something for ten minutes. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> uh, Jeff, you probably traveled even more than well, I. Well, actually, my daughter's like her reports a, a a lot of Asia or that way, Singapore, places like that, but which I've I've never been to, Hong Kong. Yeah, I I asked because uh, I had the good fortune to visit japan earlier this year and uh i I had never been um i've only been out of the country a few times and never that far uh into asia and like i don't know 
th- listening to Autobahn and 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 Computer World and just knowing the spirit behind like what drove those people as people, like their passions for for transit and for um for you know the advancement of of human uh, intellect and and the place of humans on Earth through technology, sort of thing, like how we grapple with the world. That just rings the kind of vibe I got from seeing you know the Shinkansen, the bullet yeah, train yeah, that definitely. goes all the way across Japan. Uh, at you know 200 miles an hour or whatever just the craziest thing when you're on it when you're near it just seeing that in reality it like that phrase that you used matt uh nostalgia for a future that never happened like it just feels like a lot of parts of the world go figure moved a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently toward that kind of future than (laughs) than the u.s did yeah i don't know man this is like existential questions now (laughs) um beyond craft work but um, but yeah, I don't know. There's I, I just there's a certain hopefulness to the music. I think that definitely grows out of that kind of mid-century, twentieth-century idea that you know, kind of better living through technology kind of vibe. That I think that you know, and I'm sure Jeff, I think you brought this up too. Is that a lot of that is you know some of it is ironic, and also you know they were probably you know escaping something right. you know because post-war Germany was you know probably not a great place to grow up for some people, you know, it's right. a broken country in some right. ways. And, um, I mean, all of their original records all came up while the Berlin wall was still up. So, uh, you know, Germany itself and, and was a totally different place. Uh, it was, you know, being controlled by foreign governments took them over after the war. So, you know, I feel like we've, we've covered everything really well. Um, this has been a really entertaining conversation jeff we really appreciate you coming on the show and i really appreciate your insight and you know obviously you have a, a great passion for craft work and that that really shows yeah i uh you know when you said uh, when you invited me on i was like i i'm gonna just have to learn to, to shut up uh and not just blab incessantly because i love talking <laughs> about them so i oh that's not <laughs> how podcasts work <laughs> No, but it, no it's, it's been great it's great yeah and i mean sadly it's a sad occasion um yeah so, you know Rest in peace, Florian Schneider. Obviously, I think I hope we've made the case that you know I think by any measure, um, him and him and Ralph are, have to be among the most influential musicians of the 20th century. I don't I don't see how you get around that, um, you know. So I hope hopefully this gives some context, and I think definitely anyone that's grown up on you know dance music or electronic music or hip hop or synth pop or or video game music, I think that you know we all owe them you know, a really big debt, frankly, just for what they did and and doing it on technology that I'm sure would be incredibly primitive by today's standards. Right. And with really no blueprint yeah. before them. I mean, they created it. These records have like no, you know, no peer uh, before or during that time. They just, they just made it. Absolutely. Yeah. It gives it a beautiful sort of improvisational feel even today. It's crazy. Uh, before we let you go, Jeff, mm-hmm. we have some questions from the MinMax community. We ask uh, before every episode that our community submits some questions and song suggestions. Those have all appeared in the MinTrack community playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. Uh, anybody listening to this who, who likes what they hear, leave us a review on iTunes. This is your show. So uh, let us know what you think. It, it helps us a lot to have those reviews um, and just to have your direct feedback. Uh, it's, it's the best way for you to tell us what, what's working and what's not. Uh, we got Hunter S. Sachs. Thoughts on LCD sound system, particularly with respect to their craftwork inspirations. Jeff, you want to take? Uh, sure, I'll start off. Um, well, I've always had a little bit of a problem with LCD sound system, only just because um, I, I, I respect them or him. Um, but I have a lot of trouble with the vocals. Um, 
because it, it, it just it's it feels too self-consciously uh, I don't know dorky to me. It, it takes me away from the music. I like the music a lot, um, but yeah, I I I have like two LCD sound system records in my collection, but I just I I listen to like two songs and I'm like ah, okay, shut up. That that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I like them. I think more than you. Particularly, this is happening. I think was the one that kind of resonated with me more. And then I remember like the early ones, like Daft Punk is playing at my house and losing my edge. Those singles when they came out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th- the thing about Murphy is that you know, I I like that band a lot. I think that he's kind of the ultimate like record guy band. You know what I mean? Like he's he's got like a super good record collection. And he he knows like all these references and stuff, and he puts them together, I think, in very good ways, and kind of made you know some of these like kraut rock influences and stuff into pop music that you know people in the you know two thousand two thousand tens in America could really dig and could get on the radio and things like that um so I mean obviously, I'm sure he you know he's one of those guys like he's heard all the graphic stuff, he's heard all the can stuff, he's heard all the noise stuff, he's heard all the cluster stuff, you know what I mean he's he's like the dude knows music almost you know. To a fault, could you say sometimes? I don't know. Is it too like kind of curated? But um, but again, I mean, he he. I think he's written some good songs, and I do enjoy their their work overall. Yeah, I, I have to admit that Daft Punk is playing in my house is a great song. Instant classic. I wonder what that song's about. <laughs> uh, Tim Laro asks, "What are some of the things that keep good music, uh, sorry, good repetitive music, from becoming annoying? Any any things that you that you listen for in a song?" that repeats sort of that iterative sound that keeps you from being getting bored with the song. Well, marijuana can help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We allowed to say that on the air. Uh, No, yeah. Shout out, shout out to the grateful, grateful dead. Shout out. (laughs) Oh, Matt, are you any closer now to being a grateful? Uh, We don't want to, we're getting to a dark place, but I'm starting to, yeah, I'm starting to have, I'm starting to have symptoms. I'm exhibiting symptoms. I got to self quarantine from the dead. Um, you know, I think shifting motifs, you know, listening for the variations is neat. Um, that's a, that's a, it's a good question, but that's a tough question. I mean, I know some people just can't deal with repetition at all. Um, I happen to like it uh, quite a bit. I, I know some, that's why some people can't listen to reggae, but it's why I love reggae. I sort of like that kind of trance state that the music puts you in. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm definitely with you, Jeff. I, repetitive stuff, I'm, is like some of my favorite things. Actually, I love repetitive music overall. It's probably one of my favorite things about music. And I guess to me, and well, honestly, a lot of stuff we just listen to, if you listen to some of these records, um, is kind of a masterclass, I think, in, in making repetitive stuff, craft work, kind of making it, 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 um, I don't know, just very accessible and, and keeps your interest. I just think that it's like, there's a subtle art to that. You either have to sort of like every so often, maybe every, two minutes or so you have to kind of either like add a slight little variation or, or take something away out of the track. You sort of have to either add or subtract throughout the track. And I think that the, the, uh, the art of it, you know, is kind of how you build things up and, and, and bring them back down and just make like these subtle little hiccups in, in the formula, because if it's just the same thing, it'll get boring, but you also do kind of want to have, like you said, that sort of hypnotic vibe. I guess my, my perspective is falls in the, in, in line with you guys where it's like, no music is inherently boring. It's like kind of like how it's deployed and what tools you use to to make it. And again, having like an unexpected thing pop in every little while, every few measures or like a chord change can really make it interesting. Uh, but like 
I guess it, it's a big, a, a big thing that I was thinking about while, while listening to craft work was like, frankly, I was listening to it while doing other work or while riding my bike or while on a walk. I wasn't just sitting and listening and paying attention like I do with, with most music I listen to because like it j- changes too infrequently for you to really like pick up on what's happening now and what's happening now. You just have to like check in every once in a while. You have to be cognizant every once in a while to see what's changing and what new sounds you're hearing. I, lo- I love that, mm-hmm. but it's a thing that I've, I had to train my ear yeah. to, I guess. And as a side point, I'm sure like you guys have been listening to it at work and it's craft work is amazing work. Yes. It, it's, it's oh. just like, cause it, it's interesting and it has enough to keep you going, but also you kind of get in this kind of like little do, 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 like I'm very efficient getting my work done kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, you just feel like a little, I am the man, a little machine. robot, but it's, yeah, totally. It's, it, it's been great. It's actually like, I, I, it reminds me I need to listen to, cause I have work music is tough for me. There's certain things I can't listen to while I'm actually trying to concentrate. So it's been good for that. Uh, yeah, I will use this time to plug i think maybe every episode i've plugged just going to youtube and typing in video game music for studying people have curated really really good and often long tracks from video game osts that are uh just like they've got just enough texture to keep your ears entertained without having like any standout melodies that distract or like really catch your ear it's a perfect balance the right playlist like increases productivity 600 percent. it's nuts uh it's it's like some weird psychological thing um, our next question comes from Bob Buell, who asks, is there a band or a musical artist that you do not like for reasons unrelated to their music? Uh, Bob's example is Guns N' Roses. Uh, learning that they were sort of prima donna pricks has sort of turned him off of, of that band. Well, that was kind of their thing, but yeah. I got one. Uh, Ted Nugent. Oh, man. Right. That's almost too easy. Yeah. yeah. But he he kind of only had like maybe five good songs to begin with. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody, uh, you know, somebody that I struggle, like I go between liking a lot and then sort of hating sometimes. Is, and a part of it's his personality. Frank Zappa has always been a tough oh, one yeah. for me. And like, he's got this kind of dickish, superior, kind mm-hmm. of acerbic smart guy thing where you can just tell he thinks, I don't, I, Zappa's just kind of a dick and, and he's a smart guy, a very talented guy, but he certainly seemed, I don't, he had this sort of superior attitude that kind of always rankles me. And I think it infects a lot of his songs and totally agree. He has this kind of mean sense of, hu- mean sense of humor that I'd never really, and kind of sexist sense of humor that I didn't really like. I like some of the more instrumental stuff he does, but Zappa has been tough. I think this is a common one too. And I think it's sort of, for me also dovetailed with his work becoming less compelling to me, but Kanye West. Yeah. Um, I think at one point I was an absolutely huge fan of his and now I, I really don't like what he's doing um at all um i'm trying to think who else i had one other example uh, one but, um, that comes to mind for me is morrissey oh yes who was it was a real bummer just to find out what a what an asshole he is no dude that i mean honestly man like there was a point like a lot of people you know it was sort of after the fact of them being a band but you know he was always solo but you know discovering them in high school um man the smiths meant a lot to me at a certain point and just discovering that he's just a kind of a really dumb prick and a racist <laughs> and uh, a bigot is just, man, uh, uh, that one kind of yeah, hurt does, just because hurts. there's certain things in, in, yeah. in, in like a high school sense or a college sense when you're kind of feeling like lonely or whatever. Uh, the Smiths kind of were a band that I discovered, you know, later on. And, and so that's, yeah, that's, that, that one really, really bums me out actually, Morrissey, to the point where it's, it's hard for me to listen to his music now knowing I totally like, kind agree. Of what a racist he is. Yeah. Um, because I think empathy was so much part of that the music to me, and and maybe 
maybe that was an illusion or maybe he's changed. I don't know. But um, yeah, so that was kind of sad to me, I guess. But the upshot is, yeah, you just don't, you just don't want to empathize with somebody like that is the root of it, right? Yeah. It was more that like their music seemed to have empathy for people and, and people that maybe felt like outsiders and to know that he's kind of one of the people that's making other people feel like outsiders kind of seems like a... Right. He's saying, uh, kind of being, you know, I'm human and I want to belong just like everyone else does, you know. But now, apparently, unless you're black or you're brown. You're like Muslim. Muslim. So, yeah, that's, that's a sad one to me. All, all great answers. <laughs> Depressing, but I don't know enough about... I, I, I make the joke, and it's not a joke, that I, I thought Van Morrison and Morrissey were the same guy until I was like 20 years old. <laughs> Ooh. It was halfway through college when I finally realized wow. they're not the same person. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? So, <laughs> final, so like... Knowing that there's no good reason for me to go, go to Morris's yeah. music mm. is making me feel pretty good. Yeah. Van, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Van Morrison, but he's uh, reputed to be quite a dick himself. So. Yeah, he he. I, I've seen him multiple times. And actually, I will never see Van Morrison again as much of a fan as I am because I've been to a couple shows where he was in a bad mood. And it's just, he's just a dick and it's a waste of money. <laughs> Ouch. Um, I, I, was at, I was at a show at Great American Music Hall many years ago um, where he was he was just in a shitty mood he didn't want to be there so he would sing perfunctorily and when it wasn't his time to sing he turned his back to the audience <laughs> it, it was just like it was like we were angry does he make that part of a bit or is it just like no because i don't know that that could be funny no right? no He's but it's not grump. i mean if you listen to his you know especially any records from the last 20 years half the songs are about like how hard it is to be him you know, how shitty it is to be a musician, how everybody's just ripping him off, you know. <laughs> and then in between, there's like these beautiful pastoral songs about love and, you know, Irish Springs, not the soap. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's he's a weird guy, but I love him. Well, damn. I, I, I'll, I'll try not to let that. As, as long as he's not like openly an anti-Semite or something, I'll, I'll have no, an okay no, time no. still digging in. No, no, I think he's just, he's just, he just doesn't like people. He doesn't like anyone. He's he doesn't cur- discriminate. <laughs> He's curmudgeon. He's a curmudgeon. All right. Yeah. See, curmudgeons, I don't know. I think it's because I plan, I plan to become one, but I think I can get along with curmudgeons generally pretty well. So maybe maybe I should just I'll stick I, I the course. I heartily recommend I'll stick the um, that uh, Google uh, Van Morrison's performance in The Last Waltz. He, if you Google Van Morrison, The Last Waltz. Oh, I forgot he was in Caravan. there. You'll see him like in the happiest mood. He's one of the great all-time live performances of all time. I think that is. Oh yeah, I just I just bought that movie on Blu-ray. I think I forgot that he was in that because the way you're describing his live performances is that he's just always dour. But yeah, remembering him his uh, his appearance in in the last waltz, is, <clears throat> man. So he's got some real highs and some yes. Real. Uh, we have one last question, uh, and it comes from Michael Moran. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, what are your favorite musical movies? And uh, and the examples that he gives are School of Rock, Whiplash, Pitch Perfect. Seems to be uh, movies that center around music as a central theme or like that carry the plot rather than specifically uh, like musicals with that connotation. Well, I have – there's one – I don't think it counts. But it, my favorite movie that has music as, as, one of, as its main theme of all time is, is Stop Making Sense. By talking heads, but I guess that doesn't really count because that's a documentary no, that, of their I performance. That, I think that count, but the way it's done, though, I think is different than a just to make the argument for it that it's the way it's staged 
I think is much more movie like and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I felt like they structured that show to be filmed. Yeah. Yeah. I I I struggled with that with this question, like trying to anticipate what you guys would answer. I know that Matt is not a big fan of the movie Whiplash. I think he's told me that before. Oh yeah. There should be like uh, a ten minute cut of that where that guy starts yelling at that kid <laughs> and the kid knocks his ass out and then they roll the credits. <laughs> Fucking hate that movie. Yeah. It's just I don't like that abusive like that whole kind of abusive old school like instruction. I just don't. I didn't like that part of it at all. I mean, it, there was some cool. The drumming was cool, but like, I'd honestly recommend you go back. Uh, but what what I was gonna say is that movies like Stop Making Sense and The Last Waltz don't don't feel so much like documentaries to me, just because like they have very clearly a directorial eye. You know, like they are almost creating a fiction around what's happening in reality. I don't know that that counts to me. So if that's your answer. Hey, that's your answer. Well, there, I, would, I would also say, I, not everybody knows about this movie, but there's a movie called that the Monkees made. Yes, the Monkees, uh, called Head, um, A-T-A-D. And it came out in like 1968 or 69, and it was written by Jack Nicholson. Uh, and it was directed by Bob Rafelson. And I think all of them were probably on acid at the time. Um, yeah, what the hell? But it's an incredible <laughs> kind of reimagining or... Uh, or, or play on the whole monkeys uh, mythos, if you will, if you call it a mythos. I mean, they the, the movie is expressly about how they're a band that was just created by a TV studio. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing movie. I highly I, recommend you seek it out. I've seen that. I actually shout out to Matt Cotto from Game Informer. He's a very like Cotto was kind of a mod at one point, so he was very into like the Who and the you know, Beatles and Britpop and things of that nature. But he was the first one that like kind of hit me to like the monkeys later stuff. That was kind of cooler. And he borrowed me like a VHS of that one time. And that's it, a wild movie for sure. Matt, Matt Cutto was a mod. Yeah. Yeah. He had a scooter and everything. Wow. Um, for sure. Like a Lambretta, <laughs> you know, like the quadrophenia type stuff. Not that to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, Incredible. Yeah, to bring the kinks and the who and all that stuff. Um, I was going to pick one that I don't know if a lot of people have seen. I really kind of don't love a lot of biopics in the kind of Ray. Walk the Line was pretty good. Good performance. Or that Queen movie. Um, mm-hmm. There's one rock movie, kind of a fictionalized one that I really, really love. It's it's super creative. They blend kind of reality, real people, fictional people. They actually tell a lot of lies and then kind of speak to the camera and telling it's called 24 hour party people. And it is the story of factory records, which was, um, you know, originally joy division, the new order, uh, a certain ratio, a bunch of those type of bands from the early eighties. And then they kind of had a second go with like, uh, the kind of Madchester scene with like, uh, happy Mondays. Um, but anyway, it uh it 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 centers around um God I'm spacing on his name now Factory Records guy um he he died a couple years ago um it's he's he's played by Steve Coogan right and, and uh in the movie and it's it's really a fun kind of anarch anarchic if that's the right word um it's just not the typical kind of like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened kind of like you know just um just running down like the Wikipedia page. You know what I mean? Uh, Tony Wilson. That, and Tony was a very like all time, like kind of hustler bullshitter guy. And, uh, you know, he kind of glommed onto punk early and kind of gave it a, a voice. And it's, it, that's a really good movie. Um, I was trying to think of some other ones that I liked. I was going to, I had stopped making sense was on my list. Um, actually, uh, this is kind of similar to maybe the last waltz, but very, um, grim. Give me shelter. 
by the Masales brothers, um, which is the, the documentary of Altamont, uh, where, you know, the people were killed by the Hells Angels during the Rolling Stones set is, you know, it's an amazing bit of filmmaking and, and it's not necessarily a fun watch. Um, yeah, you actually you see the guy get, or I forget, guy, girl get, yeah. get stabbed on camera. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't stress how tense part of these, like, there's a part where, like, they beat up Marty Balin from Jefferson Airplane. Like, he jumps into the crowd to defend somebody and the Hells Angels, like, beat him up. It's really crazy. And it's a very, like, uh, well shot as well. Um, but Yeah, the deal was that the Stones were playing a free concert at, at Altamont. Uh, which is, I think, here in California. And um, uh, so it was a free show. So, of course, had uh, hordes of people. And somehow uh, somebody had the brilliant idea of hiring the Hells Angels as the security. Yeah, that's it's 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 a very gripping but grim watch. Um, and just real quick, I want to mention a couple others. I think Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of feels like a, a rock movie yeah. to me. And that's a classic. Um, the guy also mentioned School of Rock, which I actually really, you know, to me, it's kind of the opposite of Whiplash. Like, it's kind of a corny movie, and it's definitely Jack Black doing his shtick. But I really felt like, I think that he was really cracking up those kids, and those kids seemed to have a genuine joy about making music in those scenes when they're like, you know, they're rehearsing and stuff. And it just felt like they were really having fun in the moments when they were filming that movie. And and it's you know pretty formulaic comedy or whatever you want to say. But I actually really I, I like School of Rock. It, it, I think it, I love that movie. It shows what's what's fun about making music and why you know, why kids love being in bands, you know? So I, I did appreciate that about it. I think I might be the only person in my twenties who has not seen school of rock. You it's, should it's remedy that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's on like Netflix or something, but, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I'm trying to think of a couple of like Sid and Nancy. Um, Oh gosh, that was great. Velvet yeah. Goldmine, um, which is really a good kind of, is that Todd Haynes? I think. Yeah. And it's this weird kind of fictionalization of like Iggy pop and, David Bowie and Lou Reed and that kind of whole scene. Um, but that's kind of an arty take on it. You know, it's not, definitely not a typical thing. Like, uh, but yeah, so those were some of the ones that came to mind. One of the last things we do every episode is we pull a song suggested by the community to listen to. Um, and this one this week was suggested by raw party, uh, user raw party. Thank you so much for suggesting this song. It has a sort of a lo-fi dance vibe, and I felt like it was probably appropriate considering the the subject matter of this episode. This is a song called Last Ones on the Dance Floor by 3D Blast featuring Maggie.Wave. Again, incredible, wildly good usernames being being bandied around here. Uh, This is by 3D Blast featuring Maggie.Wave and Father Glamour. I picked this one in conjunction with that question about repetitive songs, because I think that 
and we don't have time to play the whole thing. It's a six, five minute song. Um, but I found that it was a pretty good example of with dynamic changes and instrumentation and arrangement, you can get a lot out of a simple repeated riff and a simple single repeated hook. Uh, and it, it just like, I've never been a super huge fan of, of dance music or, or, um, you know, more dance. So it doesn't feel that dancey to me. Yeah. That's what I mean is like, it's, it's just a scance of that. It's got like the, the booming bass of an electro song of like what you might hear in a club, but without sort of that, the rhythm, like it's much, much slower, much, much more like sad boy type, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> like paper crinkling in the background type it, lo-fi, like pop. Here's where, here's where I'm just old or whatever. But is this like that kind of internet music stuff where like all the graphics look like Echo the Dolphin and shit? Like yeah, that? yeah. It's it it could be it yeah, could be okay. reasonably considered a vaporwave. I believe is is the term for that genre. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, I know. I know that vibe. That kind of like the Sega Genesis kind of like <laughs> yeah. box art kind of vibe. I, yeah. I'm not super into that genre, but when the right song hits, and I think this one did. It clicks. Uh, Zencaster might be doing us a little bit dirty on the quality that you guys are hearing, but you know, expand your musical horizons. Check it out. Yeah, that was interesting. It's definitely like uh, uh, so much stuff's interesting just because it's definitely kids that grew up with like access to music editing software. You know what I mean? From like age nine, you know, they had like GarageBand and stuff like that. So I, I yeah. find that kind of interesting the kind of music they make because it's like informed by the fact that they are so comfortable with kind of manipulating stuff and editing sounds and right, samples right. and things. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I'm actually, you know, I'm thinking back to like the beginning of, of this podcast growing up in the seventies. I, I'm really like jealous in a way of, of, of the access to kids have today, both in terms of listening and playing. It, it's such a huge world that they have to choose from. Um, and, and everyone's musical knowledge is so much greater and deeper than it was back in the day. It's, you know, a lot of people talk about, the good old days. Uh, well, old people like me, sorry. But uh, this is a case where everything just got better. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and like, you know, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, so it was kind of like, you know, people have a nostalgia for the 80s, but, you know, they forget that like a lot of the 80s was like me having to like listen to Paula Abdul. <laughs> right. Or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it wasn't like everyone was like sitting around listening to like New Order 12 inches and shit like that. You know, it was. Yeah. I mean, shit, <laughs> if I wanted like, to, if I wanted to listen to Kraftwerk, I would have to, you know, find a record store that knew who they were. I'd have to drive down there. I'd have to uh, hope that it was even in stock. And, and, you know, and I'd have to wait, you know, till whenever I could go there, whenever my mom would drive me there. Like now it could be three in the morning and you could think of any freaking band that ever existed. And hear the song like that second. The the futures is yeah. amazing. <laughs> Other than the apocalypse. <laughs> Other than <laughs> Other almost than that, everything. <laughs> but, but we'll have a lot of good tunes before they turn the lights off. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, and and I think that that's yeah that's the end of our community oriented uh, section. Thank you so much for to to all of our our supporters uh, for your feedback. It's it's a lot of fun putting this podcast together, and uh, and we appreciate uh, you guys helping us make it better. Um, and thank you again to uh, our special guest. Uh, Jeff Green, uh, Jeff of MinMax One End. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Jeff. It was so much fun, and, and this was a great conversation. Maybe you know, maybe down the road, if we you could have you back. That would be that would be awesome. Anytime. Let's, let's talk. Anytime. It was my pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, you know, leave us reviews, um, you know, and likes, and we'd we'd appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in in a couple weeks for our next episode. Bye bye.